Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. Romans chapter 1, this morning we'll be looking at verse 2, uh, but I would like for us to read verses 1 and 2 just to give ourselves a little bit of context, so we'll read both verses today. Let's stand together if you're able in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a gift and a treasure. But Father, more than that, it is authoritative in our lives. So we pray this morning that indeed we would treasure it and value it. But we also pray that you would teach us to submit to it, even in our time together studying it this morning. Father, we we pray together that you now would speak to us. That you would use me as your mouthpiece. Your people need to hear your words, not mine. So empty my mouth of my own words and fill my mouth with your words. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Lord, even as we begin a walk through what is at times a difficult book, give us minds to understand. You desire for us to understand, so help us. Give us hearts that are obedient. Not hearts that simply look into your word as if it were a mirror and then go away and forget everything that we've seen. But hearts that are obedient to your word and submissive to your word such that when we leave this place, we leave forever changed. Because we have heard from you, the living God, through this, your living word. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. They just don't make them like they used to. How many of you have ever heard that before? It's okay, you can raise your hands. How many of you have ever heard that before, said that before, lamented that, maybe even this weekend if you were you know, doing some yard work and the lawnmower broke on you or uh, you know, the refrigerator gave out uh, immediately the day that the warranty expired, that, that sort of thing. thing. Things just don't seem to be indeed made like they used to be. Oftentimes the best thing you can find is an old thing. It is time-tested and proven. It's something you can trust more than what seems to be oftentimes uh, cheap manufacturing in things that are brand new today. Something old just carries with it something more trustworthy. This is true most especially in matters of doctrine. We have said before that if you encounter a new teaching, something that is a novel and new idea amongst the Christian faith which has been around for 2,000 years, it is not something you should quickly trust New ideas in the Christian faith are 99.999% of the time bad ideas, if not worse. 
And so for the Apostle Paul, as he begins his setup, his introduction to his epistle to the Romans, it is important for him to establish that the gospel was not a new doctrine. The church in Rome needed to understand that the promise of the gospel that was now fulfilled in the New Testament was a promise first made in the Old Testament and and was, in fact, the promise and intent of God before the foundation of the world. The gospel, the good news, was not an invention from the Apostle Paul, nor was it an advent of the New Testament. It was a promise fulfilled that God had made long ago. You and I need to recognize the very same thing, that the gospel is the promise of God from before the foundations of the world. It is the promise of God foretold in the Old Testament. It is the promise of God now fulfilled in the New Testament, and its foundation is the Scriptures. In verse 1 then, as Casey led us through last week, Paul made clear his calling and his authority to write the letter, and those were key and important. Who is this that is writing this letter to the church in Rome? Well, it's Paul who is a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for a gospel ministry. But now in verse 2, he has to do something that is arguably even more important, and that is to establish not only his own authority to write the letter as he did in verse 1, but now to define the biblical authority from which he will be basing all of his discussion in this letter, all of the arguments he will make. All of the explanation of the gospel he would provide and all of the applications of the gospel to our lives that he, with which he will challenge us, all of it comes from the authority of the Scriptures. Of course, indeed, we know that as we read it now in the New Testament, this is divinely inspired Scripture. But the Apostle Paul needed to make sure that his original readers needed to know the same. They were able to trust that this truth of the gospel was founded in the Scriptures and was not some newly invented idea of his own. Paul alludes to or even directly quotes from the Old Testament 61 times just in the letter to the Romans alone. That's not even counting all the other times he does it in all of his other letters. In just the letter to the Romans, he alludes to or quotes directly from the Old Testament 61 times to establish the Old Testament as the foundation for the good news of the gospel. The gospel, as Paul claims here in verse 2 and will prove throughout the duration of the letter, is not his invention. It's not the advent of the New Testament. It is firmly founded. And what we will see this morning, remarkably more, it is promised in the Old Testament. It is indeed and truly what we call the old, old story. So there are going to be hard things that we talk about in our study of the book of Romans. We're going to take it slowly because there are going to be difficult things, chewy things for us to try to digest. Some of those will take a while to get to. If you've looked ahead, you know chapter 9 is coming, but we probably won't get there for nine more years. Others will build over time. We'll get hints of them already here in the first uh, few verses, even in this introduction. Some of these things we've already hinted at. Casey uh, outlined some of those things, forecast some of those discussions we would have. They'll sort of build over time as we move through the book, and we'll get the chance to digest them slowly. Other things, uh, other things will hit us in the face quickly. We won't get far into Romans 1 when we will all want to take a collective gasp because of the things that it will force us to talk about from the biblical authority. We need to know from the outset, from the outset of chapter 1, verse 2, that all of these discussions, all of these truths, hard as they may be, difficult as they may be for us to understand or even to digest, all of them come from the Scriptures, not from any man. 
It would be folly for us to spend the next several years walking through my ideas on things. It would be a waste of your time, and quite frankly, it would be a waste of mine. All the things that we will discuss from this book, because they come from this book, are biblical, scriptural, God's ideas and not man's. And we need to know this from the outset. And so, we need to be faithful to seek to understand what the Scriptures say, more than what any man thinks or feels, including, by the way, ourselves. There will be a, a, a temptation that will occur several times, many times, in fact, as we study through the book of Romans. Again, if you've read ahead, you know where some of these things are going to hit you, where you will be tempted to think, well, I know that says this, but I feel more like this about it. Or I know that says that God works that out this way, but I feel more like it should be this way. Or I know God has given that instruction, or I know God has called that sin, or I know God has said this is what we must do, but this feels more palatable to me, so I'll lean that way. More important than anything anyone feels, including ourselves as we study this book, is to understand what does the Bible say about these matters. The hard truth that we come face to face with and that we would certainly give lip service to. We, we would say this with our mouths. We know this with our minds. But we will be brought face to face in confrontation with this reality in our study of this book is that you and I don't get to shape the gospel nor any biblical doctrine into a package that we prefer. Because it doesn't come from us and it doesn't come from any man. It comes from God. And it is clearly spelled out in the Bible, His Word. As we consider this morning verse 2 and its implications, we'll consider three truths that you and I need to set foundationally about the gospel and about its relationship to the whole of Scripture if we are to rightly understand it specifically now in our study of Romans. So if you're taking notes there on the notes pages, you can number 1, 2, and 3. We'll have some sub-points as we go along. Uh, but Roman number 1, point 1, truth number 1 that we need to understand about the relationship between the gospel and the whole of Scripture is that the gospel is a promise kept. The gospel is a promise kept. He begins with these words in verse 2, which he promised beforehand. Now the which that begins verse 2 refers back to verse 1, and that's why we read it for context. It refers to the gospel of God. It is the gospel that the Apostle Paul will spend this verse, and actually the next two as well, defining for us, unpacking for us, and here in this verse, relating back as rooted in the Old Testament. So the gospel is going to be the theme of our discussion. If we want to know what the promise was, it's the gospel. That's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time this morning. The gospel has been God's plan from before the foundations of the world. That phrase, promised beforehand, comes from a compound Greek word. It combines the word for promise with this prefix, pro, meaning from the beginning. Not just beforehand, but ultimately beforehand. From eternity past, from the beginning This unique compound word, in fact, is only used twice in the entire New Testament. And so it carries a particular emphasis. The particular emphasis of this word is that the salvation promise, the gospel promise that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, has been God's plan from the beginning. He didn't just promise it. He promised it beforehand. He didn't just promise it in the past tense. He promised it from eternity past. 
The gospel then is not plan B, C, or D. It was and is always plan A since before the foundations of the world. In fact, in writing his pastoral epistle to Titus, Paul writes this, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Before he spoke and said, let there be light, and called evening and morning the first day, God had determined in love, grace, and mercy that he would save you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says it this way. If you've got your Bible still open, and I hope and trust that you do, you can turn a little bit to the right to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I'd like for you to see this for yourself, if you will, turn just those few handfuls of pages there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, and the beginning part of verse 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, we're not going to spend time this morning unpacking Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 too much. We'll get to some of those difficult discussions later on in the book. Suffice it to say this morning that we are setting the stage. Paul is setting the stage, again, reminding us that the stage is set in its biblical foundations for those difficult discussions to which we will arrive uh, at, a, at a later time, in a later date, in a later passage. But notice the phrase that is similar in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 to that in Romans 1, 2, and that is that He has chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Again, your redemption, God's redemption plan, was not plan B. It was not a scrambled attempt to fix the mess. It was plan A from before the foundations of the world. The good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ would die on a cross for your sins and mine, providing the only sufficient atoning sacrifice for sin, that He would rise from the grave three days later in order to provide us with a free gift of eternal life and imputed righteousness, that plan that He should accomplish those things was God's plan to save you before the world ever began. Genesis 3.15, in fact, tells us the first of these promises. If this has been the plan, and it has been since before the foundation of the world, you will also note that it didn't take God long to announce that He had a plan to fix the mess He knew was coming. If you want, you can flip back all the way to the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 3. If you hit your table of contents, you've gone a little too far. It's almost all the way back to the left. You'll recall that God created all things, spoke all things into existence by the the, the power of His Word, placed man and woman in a garden and gave them an instruction not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But man and woman rebelled and they took the fruit and they ate it, deciding that they would have the authority to decide what was good and bad instead of God seeking to take that authority for themselves. They took the fruit, they ate it, and sin entered both the world and man's posterity, meaning that from that point forward, all of us would be born as descendants of Adam into sin. And now the world was filled with a very real sin problem. But because God had had a plan since before the foundations of the world, And because all of this was going, in fact, according to plan, heartbreaking and gut-wrenching though it were, God makes the first announcement that this problem is a problem He has promised to fix. Genesis 3.15 records God's words 
of punishment even directed toward the serpent. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we may look on a surface level at the promise of Genesis 3.15 and say, well, yeah, that's a rather obvious application. Anytime I see a snake, before it gets to bruise my heel, I try to crush its head. That's pretty common practice. If you live in my house, that's the rule. I don't care. The only good snake is a dead snake. But Genesis 3.15 promises something far greater than that. And that is there is coming the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ, who though His heel will be bruised, that is, He will die on a cross and suffer under the wrath of the Father for our sins, in so doing, He will crush the head of the serpent and so deliver us from the bond of sin. God's plan from before the foundation of the world is announced in a prophecy immediately after the fall. The gospel has been God's plan to save since before the foundation of the world. And likewise, the gospel has been God's promise to save since the fall in the garden. So the gospel wasn't new to Paul. It wasn't new to the book of Romans. It wasn't even new to the gospels in the New Testament. It had long been the plan. And what is more, it had long been the promise The gospel is the promise of God, and so with the emphasis on Him, both as the maker of the promise and as the keeper of the promise, we need to recognize a couple of things. First, as the maker of the promise, God loved us so much that He put the plan into motion. God wouldn't have made this promise were it not for His grace and mercy and love. John 3.16, a familiar passage to you, records it this way, for God so what? loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That promise made in John 3.16, even as Jesus is explaining it to Nicodemus, this old promise now fulfilled in the person and the soon-to-be work of Christ was the plan of God from before the foundations of the world. Why? Because He loved the world in this way, that He would send His Son to die on a cross in the place of sinners. If you go back to Ephesians 1, you'll notice how verse 4 into verse 5 continues. Even as we have talked about God's plan from the, before the foundation of the world to save us, Ephesians 1, the second part of, of verse 4 and then into verse 5 says, in love. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. This plan to save us from before the foundations of the world this setting us apart for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, all of this wrapped up in the purpose of His will is done by what motivation? Love. Love. God has made a promise. He has made a promise to save. And He has made a promise to save because He loves you. There's a reminder here, an important reminder here, that the gospel cannot be based on our merit because it is based on His love. And His love is not deserved or earned. It's a gift of grace. When you think about the gospel and as we talk about the gospel and discuss the gospel and study the gospel through the book of Romans, 
I pray that you were impacted by the reminder that the gospel has nothing to do with whether or not you deserved to be saved. The good news of the gospel is not that God looked into the future and saw what an awesome person you would be if he saved you. The truth of the gospel is that despite how wretched God knew your sins would be, he loved you and he sent his son to rescue you from sin. He has made a promise, and He has made that promise because of His love. Secondly, as the keeper of the promise, God is sovereign to bring the promise to fruition. Now, I said secondly, and some of you, I heard you, you're writing Roman number two. Uh, this is actually only um, like sub-point three, part two. Just bear with me. As the keeper of the promise, God is sovereign to bring the promise to fruition, to bring that plan to completion. God is the maker of the promise. He has made the promise by His love, grace, and mercy. But because He's the one that made the promise, He's also the one that keeps the promise. And if He's going to keep the promise, it is a reminder that He is powerful to do it. How many of you have ever made a promise you couldn't keep? How many of you have ever made a promise that was dependent on someone else for you to keep it? I can't think of an example right offhand, but if you gave me a moment, I would, but we're going to move a little more quickly than that. You've promised something, but it's not really yours to promise because you can't really do anything about it. I promise this is going to happen, or I promise that's going to go well, or whatever it may be, but it's not in your control. And so you have no real way of making sure that that promise gets kept. That's not true of God at all. When God makes a promise, God is also the keeper of the promise because God is able to bring it to pass. God's promise to save you is not, I love you so much, I really hope you get saved. I love you so much, I'm going to develop this plan and I hope it works out. I love you so much, I'm going to send my son and I hope all that goes well for you so that you'll be saved. I really hope. I'm crossing my fingers up here in heaven. God who keeps the promise is able to keep it. He is sovereign and in control. And when He makes a promise, it's not just a blind hope that maybe it will come to fruition. He is sovereign to make sure that indeed it does. The word translated promise beforehand, we've already talked about how it stretches back into eternity past. It also occurs in the middle voice. That's important because in the Greek that describes the subject performing the action upon itself or acting upon itself or being affected by its own action. You have sort of in the grammar a a grammatical doubling back on himself. It's a re-emphasis of the Father and His redemption plan and promise and His ability to, to keep that promise. So not only did He promise it, but He very actively promised it a long time ago, and now He, He who made the promise, is able to make sure that that promise brings, is brought to fruition and fulfillment. He made the promise Himself concerning Himself about himself that he would save. Notice the words in Genesis 3.15 that we already read. Who will put enmity between he and the woman? That, that it's not just a promise. It's not just a forecast of how things are going to go. How many of you like James Spann? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. You like James Spann, 
And you know James Spann well enough to know that if his jacket is on, you're safe, and when you can see his suspenders, you better run for cover. You know James Spann, you like James Spann, you love James Spann, but James Spann, when he tells you what's coming, says this will happen. And he can usually be pretty sure. Now, of course, we know that weatherman can't be 100% sure, but he's, he's a pretty good one. He seems to be fairly sure of himself. But even still, when he talks about the weather, he says, it's going to rain Tuesday. He doesn't say, I will cause it to rain Tuesday. He said, this is what, going, this is, what is going to happen. Notice how different what God says is in Genesis 3.15. He doesn't say, there will be enmity between you and the woman. There will be enmity between your offspring, her offspring. What does he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God is sovereign, powerful, able to bring it to pass. He sent his son to crush the head of the serpent. It didn't just so happen that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross and it's a good thing it worked out that the head of the serpent was crushed. God sent His Son to crush the head of the serpent. He is powerful to bring the promise to pass. And brothers and sisters, we're going to get here in just a moment, but let me just go ahead and forecast one of the things we're going to talk about. That is really, really good news for you and for me when we're talking about our salvation. It is sure because He did it. I can trust in the completed work of Christ because He did it. I can trust that the gospel is effective to save me because God made it happen. God sent His Son to that cross for me. It is not happenstance. It is the redemption plan fulfilled and the power of God to fulfill His promise. That particular emphasis is the reminder that the fulfillment of the promise is bound to the one who made the promise. God who made this promise is fully capable and indeed sovereign to bring it about. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Before eternity passed, God set in motion a plan to redeem you. In Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall, God promised that the plan was coming to fruition. And in Galatians 4, when we open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fullness of time has come and God sends His Son to be born. Born to die in order to save us. Brothers and sisters, He has made a promise and He has kept His promise. And because He has kept this promise, you know that the gospel doesn't call upon the power of our works. It calls upon a faith in the saving power of God. The gospel is not about my worthiness, but about His love. We've already said that. But the gospel is also not about my effort. It's about His redemption work. It's about the promise that He made and the ability that He has to complete the promise. I've shared with you this exact story before about one of the most heartbreaking conversations I have ever had with a church member. It wasn't here. It was the last church I served. I went in and a husband and wife were preparing to teach a Sunday school class and I was talking a little bit with the husband and he, the subject got to the matter of heaven. And he said, you know, preacher, we can't all really know. 
We just have to hope that we got it right. And it all turns out okay. If that's the best hope of the gospel you have, you don't know the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about, I hope my effort is enough. I hope I've done enough to make old St. Peter happy. I hope I've been a good enough Christian to make God happy. No, the gospel isn't about your effort to save yourself. It is about God's ability to complete a promise and fulfill a promise and do the work that is necessary to do in order to save you. It's not about you saving yourself or trying your hardest or doing your best or cleaning up your act. The gospel is the good news that though your work was not enough, His is enough. And by His power and His grace, He can keep the promise to save. So we've said the gospel is a promise kept. Secondly, the gospel is prophecy fulfilled. The gospel is prophecy fulfilled. God used, as, as we're told in the continuation of verse 2, God used prophets as the vehicle through which He promised the gospel, and through which those promises of the gospel would be delivered. Now, it's noteworthy that the Apostle Paul distinguishes these prophets as his prophets, that is, God's prophets. I was studying some of the commentary this week. Uh, They noted that the word his in the sentence in Greek is both possessive and subjunctive, and that may not make you very excited, but it made me really excited. Here's why. Because the fact that it is possessive is a matter of belonging. These prophets belonged to him. That identifier distinguishes them from false prophets. We talked a lot about false prophets in our study of Jude and the danger of them. These prophets, the prophets who would make the promise, the, the prophets through whom God would communicate, rather, his promise as he made it, now communicating it through, delivering it through the prophets, they're his. They belong to him. These aren't false prophets. These aren't prophets you may or may not be able to trust. These are God's prophets. And so when they're communicating the the promise of the gospel, it comes from God. They're his prophets, his mouthpiece, his messengers. They belong to him. But the subjunctive at least as sort of this pronoun modifier, describes something that is going to be. And so not only did these prophets belong to him, that is that they weren't false prophets, they were his prophets, these prophets were also sent by him. He sent them out with this message. He didn't just find some guys and say, oh yeah, those those guys will work, let them communicate it. No, he had prophets of his own And he sent them out on purpose to deliver this message, this promise to us. This makes clear that it was God who used his prophets to proclaim his promise and his plan for redemption. God sent the prophets as part of his plan to prepare the way for his son and to remind humanity time and again that despite how our sin corrupted the world and more importantly separated us from God, God would fix it. God sent out prophets to tell us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which you read as the call to worship this morning, says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Then there's that word. The word that changes everything in every Bible verse. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. All along the way, 
from Genesis to Malachi, God was promising, a Savior is coming. My Son is coming. The seed of the woman is coming. The Messiah is coming. Promise after promise after promise, God sent out the prophets to say, He's coming. I'm going to fix this. I see your sin, and you need to know that judgment is coming. Because I'm holy, my stance toward your sin is wrathful. But because of my love for you, I'm going to fix this. The Savior is coming. And prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, he sends out with that message. The Savior is coming. Now in Jesus' life, as the gospel unfolded, all the prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming were fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets foretold. Jesus descended from David, just as the prophets foretold. Jesus was named Emmanuel, just as the prophets foretold. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as he began the Passion Week, just as the prophets foretold. Jesus died on a cross, hung on a tree outside Jerusalem, just as the prophets foretold. Jesus' body was pierced, but no bones broken, just as the prophets foretold. So God not only made the promise and communicated those promises through the prophets, He did so in such a way and with such key details that you and I are able to look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth and see beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is the one. He is the promised Savior. No one else has fulfilled these prophecies, but He has fulfilled every one to perfection and down to the finest detail. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises through the prophets, and so He is the one to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one to save us from our sins. He is the one who accomplished the work of redemption that God promised. All these other prophecies about him were true. But that also provides us with even more good news. That if God promised that these details would be true about Jesus through the prophets and all of them have come to fruition, guess what other promise is true? The promise that if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will trust in Him, repent of your sins, and trust in His sacrifice alone and His righteousness alone, the same promise that was made is also answered. That your sins will be forgiven. That you will have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, credited to your account. And that rather than eternal condemnation, what awaits you now is eternal life. If God can be trusted in the fulfillment of all of the promises, com promises communicated through the prophets and their prophecies, say that five times fast, if He can be trusted to communicate and to fulfill all of those promises given by and through the, the prophets, and He has fulfilled every single one of them, He can also be trusted that He's going to keep that promise too. That your salvation in Christ is secure because Christ has completed all the work necessary for you to be saved and all there is for you to do is to trust the work that He has done to save you by His grace. Thirdly and finally, the Scriptures are sufficient in their communication of the Gospel. The Scriptures are sufficient in their communication of the Gospel. 
the record of these promises and prophecies is contained in the Scriptures. But even more than that, the Scriptures here, Paul also refers to them as holy Scriptures, which means they're, yes, a record of all the prophecies as as they have been given, but they are far more than simply a record. This, in fact, is the only time Paul ever used this phrase, holy Scriptures. Normally, he just writes Scriptures, the word by itself in the Greek. But here he uses this phrase, unique to his writing, isolated in his writing, holy Scriptures, to emphasize indeed the holiness, the set-apartness of the Scriptures. What makes the Scriptures holy? What makes them set apart? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are holy. They are set apart in that they are God's holy Word. When we talk about this doctrine, we say that the the Scriptures are inspired. And here the reminder is that this promise comes from God. This is His Word. Secondly, the Scriptures are holy in that they are perfect and without error. They are, we say, inerrant. So not only does the promise come from God, it is inspired. The promise is without error. It's inerrant. So the promise can be trusted. The promise isn't wrong. Thirdly, the Scriptures are holy. They're set apart in that they perfectly proclaim the Gospel. That is that they are sufficient. Not only does the promise come from God, the Scriptures are inspired. Not only can the promise be trusted because the Scriptures are inerrant, but the promise is enough because the Scriptures are sufficient. The promise is enough for your salvation. The gospel that is given here is sufficient. The Scriptures tell you what you need to know, what you need to believe in order to be saved. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. The Holy Scriptures are sufficient. The Bible records for us the promises of God declared through the prophets so that we may read them. So that as we read them, we may understand them. And so as we understand them, we can draw lines of connection back to the Gospels and the New Testament and find them fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. All Scripture is about Jesus. It is about the Gospel of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we read about these disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them and they're talking, discussing the events that have transpired in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you know, did you not see it coming? All through the Scriptures, you should have known this was going to happen. You should have known about the Messiah and you should have known He was going to die and you should have known that He was going to rise again. Have you not been reading, paying attention, listening? This is the way Jesus puts it, or this is the way we're we're told about it in Luke 24, verse 27 in, in Luke's account. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
All of Scripture is about Jesus. Can you imagine being on that Bible study? Some of you were uh, in our Bible study when, when I, I first started here about four and a half years ago. We walked through on Wednesday nights one book of the Bible per week, talking about how you can see Jesus through the entirety of Scripture. And we flew at rapid pace with one book per week. But can you imagine, first of all, not your pastor, but Jesus giving that Bible study? And more than that, it not taking 66 weeks but just a walk, just walking with Jesus along the road, and Jesus says, hey, you remember reading that? Yeah, that was, that was about me. You remember reading that? Yeah, that was about me too, and that, yeah, that was about me too. I think oftentimes, I know oftentimes that we make mistakes when we read the Old Testament, and we, we tend to try to moralize it. That is, that we look at the Old Testament, we look at these accounts, and, and we try to find what is the moral of the story, and how does it apply to my life. And, and it can be helpful and useful for that. But brothers and sisters, if you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, you have missed the entire point. The point of the Old Testament is not that you should moralize it and try to be like the good characters and try not to be like the bad characters. The point of the Old Testament is that Jesus is the good character and you and I are the bad ones, but Jesus came to save us. It is about Jesus throughout the entirety of Scripture. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. In Exodus, Jesus is the deliverer who saves us from the slavery of sin. In Leviticus, He is our atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, He is our great high priest. In Deuteronomy, He is the righteous one who is our righteousness. In Joshua, He is the conqueror of our enemies who leads us into the land of promise. In Judges, He is the righteous judge. In Ruth, He is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, He is the one who slays the giant of our sin. In First and Second Kings, He is David's seed enthroned forever. In First and Second Chronicles, He is King of Kings. And in Ezra, He is God with us. In Nehemiah, He is the one who will restore His people. And in Esther, He is the Savior of His people. In Job, He is our hope when all else is lost. In the Psalms, He is our good shepherd. And in Proverbs, He is perfect in wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, He is the greater reward than all this fleeting world could ever offer. In Song of Solomon, He is the lover of our souls. In Isaiah, He is the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. In Jeremiah, He is the one who makes with us a new covenant. In Lamentations, He is the one who will one day return in perfect judgment. And in Ezekiel, He is the one who will give us a new heart. In Daniel, He is with us in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, He pursues our wandering, adulterous hearts. In Joel, He calls us to repentance. And in Amos, He is the only hope to be spared from the wrath that we deserve. In Obadiah, He is our Savior King. In Jonah, He is the one three days dead who rose again. In Micah, He is the Shepherd King. In Nahum, He is the victor over our enemies. 
In Habakkuk, he is the one in whom we may be counted as righteous. In Zephaniah, he is the merciful one. In Haggai, he is the one who restores our broken relationship with God. In Zechariah, he is our protector and our prize. And in Malachi, he is the promised Messiah. The gospel is not a New Testament invention. It was not an invention in the Gospels, and it's not an invention from the Apostle Paul. It is the same promise from the Old Testament now fulfilled in Jesus. Remember, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now, just as it has always done, the Bible continues to point us to Jesus. The Bible is God's sufficient and special revelation that proclaims the gospel even now. It proclaims the gospel of Jesus that we might believe it. Paul will refer to it later in verse 16 as the power of the gospel by which we are saved. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, he writes to Timothy reminding him, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are able. They are sufficient. They teach you what you need to know and what you must believe in order that you might be saved not by your works and not by your intelligence, but by God's perfect plan and by His completed work of redemption. John 20, verse 31, the Apostle writes about his letter, or about his book, rather, his gospel. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The gospel is a promise kept. It is prophecy fulfilled, and the Scriptures are sufficient in their communication of it. The question now that stands before you is, have you believed? These are written that you might believe. Have you believed? The Scriptures declare the good news that there is salvation from your sins in Jesus Christ. You can be saved. No matter how wretched a sinner you are, no matter how long you have run from God, and no matter how long you have called yourself a Christian, but have known that you are doing nothing more than playing the part. The Scriptures declare the good news that there is salvation for you. Have you believed? Have you put your hope in the promise? Have you put your trust in that promise kept And have you put your faith in the promise keeper? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our prayer now that you would move even in our midst, even now. That if there is anyone under the sound of my voice this morning who does not know you, who has not believed the promise of the old, old story, that you by your Holy Spirit would do the miraculous work of removing the spiritual blinders from their eyes, melting their heart of stone, 
saving them by your grace, calling them to repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross and rose again in victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. If there be even one this morning who needs to trust in that promise, would you do what only you can do now and save them by your grace and for your glory? Move in our hearts now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.